Hi, this is Michelle Carney, founder of MLUX, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Michelle Carney, welcome to the show. You're here, finally. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. (laughs) Yes, Michelle is the founder of MLUX. So we're going to talk about, well, what I really want to talk about today is why ML people need anything to do with UX and maybe why UX people need anything to do with ML because you put them together. Right. My Um, favorite topic. Yes. But first, was there a single moment in your life when you turned from being a neuroscience researcher to becoming a user experience (laughs) professional? Was there just like a bolt of lightning moment? Because that's quite a shift. Yeah, I mean, totally. I don't know if I could pinpoint the exact date and time. I am a pretty meticulous calendar person, but I do remember. So I did my undergrad in computational neuroscience working on some of the original IPython notebooks, which later became Jupyter notebooks. You might use Colab or something internally, but what I was doing was really optimizing different hyperparameters of these models and tuning these models. And the models would say, hey, this is like 30% better or whatever. And I was working on like hearing aid, cochlear implant type algorithms. And just because the model says that it's better, you put it in front of people and they don't actually perceive a difference. And if they aren't hearing 30% difference, that to me was the really interesting part about what does it take? It's not enough to just optimize it on the ML side, but how do we actually get the human perception to match that? Got it. So do you have a general approach or a change in thinking now? And can you kind of summarize what that is? I mean, you you said you gave us an example of that, but how do you apply this to any problem that comes up in the future like this? Totally. That's not a cochlear ear implant or something. How do you think about this now? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So by day, I'm like a UX researcher embedded on different ML teams. And one of the big things that I do is actually go in and help the teams understand that the models themselves also need to be designed because you can make a really great model, but if it doesn't have the inputs and the outputs that users are expecting, it's not going to work very well when we launch it as a product. So really focusing on like well, how do we get this in front of users early and test often and get their feedback? And also the other big thing to remember too, is that these models are not, they don't exist in a vacuum. Like they are coming into these users' lives and the users have so much else going on around them. For example, like Alexa devices or Google Homes and stuff like that too. Whenever they're marketed, you notice oh, nothing else is on the living room table and like they're just in the center and oh, the audio would work perfect, right? But in real life, I don't know if you have one. Uh, I see you smiling and laughing, so this must resonate with you. But for me, it's like on my kitchen counter, hidden away and like the microphone probably gets a lot of echo and all this stuff too and all this noise is going on. So that's something that we have to think about with our ML models too, is that we're coming into this user's life where there's a lot of other things going on and our model is not their top priority. So we should design it so that way it fits into their ecosystem. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So I would imagine there is some change that needs to be required for some of the team to maybe to even begin to care about this, let alone to participate in that activity of thinking about the context in which the data product and the model, the, the work that they're doing on the technical side does get experienced in the real world. 
Is there a particular approach you guys use? You're currently at Google, right? Working on ML AI tooling. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. Okay. For technical audiences, is that right? Like most of this, the work you do is is going to be used by a technical audience. Yes. Yes, okay. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I, I work by day at Google, but I love this topic so much. And I'm here to share kind of my overall breadth and knowledge and expertise because I've been running the meetup for now mm-hmm. since 2017. Oh my gosh. What five years. Tell us what MLUX oh, is. Right. We, have to, we haven't even, I haven't even asked you that. So for people who don't know that's listening, why don't you tell us what MLUX is? Oh my gosh. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, oh yeah, the meetup. So it's the machine learning and user experience meetup or MLUX meetup founded it in 2017 when I was very interested in both ML and UX and I would apply for different types of jobs and they'd be like, "Hmm, if you do both ML and UX, you must not be good at either. And I was like, what? No, there must be other people like me out there. So thought it would be like a 20 person pizza party, maybe once a quarter or something ends up our second event. We had like over 200 people and we've just been growing over the last five years. Now we do all of our events virtually as well. And I know that you've been to some of the events too, which is awesome. So that's how I was all like, oh, I should chat with Brian because I see him on the invites. So our topics really range from, you know, how do I be a UXer in general, just like an interaction designer, visual designer working with an ML team to how do I, as an ML specialist, build out products for users and everything as well, as well as methods for UX researchers. So like unsupervised learning methods for data-driven personas and everything too on UI click metric data. So really bringing together people from UX, data, ML, AI, and everywhere in between PMs, software engineers and stuff too, people Mm -hmm. who are interested in making more usable ML products. So, right, right. So, you know, given the, again, ironically, no analytics about my show, but I know who I I intend to speak to when I talk to those of you listening right now, who are probably coming more from a technical, from the, the data science side, maybe technical product management or analytics, let's call them design curious, UX curious. Perfect. If I'm bought in that some of this UX stuff isn't fluff and I'm and maybe I've seen how people aren't able to use the things that I put out with my team or they don't want to use them or they don't believe them, they have some of these kinds of problems. I hear this UX mojo like that can help me out. What do I need to change or do in my team to get going with this, especially if maybe I'm not going to run out and hire a, like a UX professional because I wouldn't even know how to fit them into my team What's the thinking change? What stuff my data science team can do themselves? Do you have any suggestions for how to get going with changing the way we approach the work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me personally, like you don't need to be a UXer to do design thinking or anything too. So that's another thing that I do mm-hmm. outside of my normal day job and mm-hmm. running a meetup. I teach at the Stanford School of Design or the D School. And one of the big things that I teach is a class aimed at those types of folks, PhD students in computer vision and NLP and that kind of stuff too. There's a really great website, the IDEO Design Kit that I absolutely love. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. it, but it has a bunch of different activities and exercises to kind of get those questions flowing about who are your users? How are they wanting to use this? One of the biggest things that I always hear is, well, everyone is my user. And so then I'm like, well, is 
a grandma in Australia, your user? No. Okay. So not everyone. Let's try to walk it back a little bit and everything too. So starting from the large boil the ocean to maybe let's start with a cup, but also putting things in phrases of point of view statements as a blank. I want to blank so I can blank mm-hmm. where the first blank is what type of customer or something too. The second blank is maybe a feature or thing that they have to do. And the because of blank is really their motivation and their goal. Mm -hmm. And I think just doing a couple of those will get your team started on really thinking about who's coming to this product. Why are they using it? How are they using it and everything too? And you probably, I mean, I assume the teams probably know this because they're building it because of some type of feedback, whether that's through form or, you know, key enterprise customers or something like that too. And so that's enough to at least get started on this before you potentially bring on a professional UXer to conduct that research, validate it, and everything like that. So tell me, is there anything that particularly a data science team working with machine learning, who, you know, obviously they're going to have technical skills and all of that. Is there any particular thing that they need to approach user experience work differently than maybe a different kind of person because of their, we'll call it a bias in their knowledge around data science and all of that, or just a particular worldview about how they see the world that you kind of feel like I got to undo that a little bit. I got to unpack this in order to repack it with a different perspective. Any broad general, I mean, we're talking about generalizations here, but (laughs) have you seen any patterns like that, that you kind of like, we need to unlearn this and then relearn that? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. One of the first things we do when we start off our our D school class, myself and my co-teacher, Emily Callahan, is we set up a shared vocabulary with the students. And the reason is because of that kind of like preconceived notion. I'm sure all the data scientists who may be listening probably understand this, but like a computer vision person has a different way of thinking about problems than an NLP person or someone who works with time series data or something like that too. And so just because you come from a certain background doesn't mean that everyone kind of thinks the same way that you do, or maybe one person's training data is another person's validation set. I don't know, like things like that too, where you're kind of using interchangeable terms, but you're like, wait, hold on, where does this go and everything too? So the first thing that I also try to help teams understand is like, you are not your users. You might have really deep expertise because you're the ones who are building out these tools, but what might your users be trying to accomplish? And so really thinking about like, how can I help them where they're at? What should be something that should be explained or even something too, where you can, one of my other favorite types of UX research techniques is called a contextual inquiry. And it's really just like, sitting and kind of like a ride along with the user about what are you doing? What does that look like? And understanding too, I'm not there to judge you on how you're using this tool. You are the expert here. And what I'm trying to do is test out the usability of my tool or of this tool. And your feedback is incredibly valuable because it helps me shape that. And are you seeing in that your students and just uh, maybe the community out there, there's a broad stereotype sometimes that like, it's not my problem if they don't understand it my job is to do the work and to produce the model and make it accurate. And, you know, if they don't understand it, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Oh my god! Do you get that at all or not so much? Do I get that? Like people telling me that sometimes do I get that from like a, do I understand why people say that? No, I don't understand that. It is your problem. (laughs) Well, kind of like it's someone else's job or, or it's, well, that sounds like a data literacy problem, which I'm not here to solve or, or something. And again, I'm, I'm broadly stereotyping, things that I've heard just from doing this for such a long time now, oh <laughs> like gosh. that this is sometimes a problem where yeah. 
you know, it's technically right, effectively wrong is the label that I use for this, you know, but (laughs) it's like the effective part isn't my problem. So it's like, well, whose problem is making it effective? Yeah. And I hear this all the time too, back when I did more privacy things Mm -hmm. like the chief privacy officer, okay, they're in charge of privacy. And now we're hearing it with ethical AI of, ah, well, there's an office of ethical AI, so it's their problem. But if we aren't thinking about privacy and ethics and explainability and usability from the beginning, then it's not going to be embedded into our products. If we just treat like usability of our ML models as a checkbox, then it kind of is just playing the role of the compliance function. And imagine too, it should not be that big of a lift as a data scientist, ML researcher, who's building out these models, who wants them to be successful, to really think about how people might want to use them. So that way you are able to deliver it in a way that really resonates with people. And it still is part of your job and everything like that too. Um, It's not, shouldn't be a giant lift of, oh, this is someone else's role to accomplish because you probably want your model to do really well too. You would think so. (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of the, I guess the simplest framing that I've heard that I think about this, especially in the context of enterprise and, and more business applications of machine learning is that, okay, so business value is the promise of these data science teams, right? We're investing all this money and data science and those smart PhD people are going to go crank something out of the basement and we're going to get some magic coming out the other end. And The first step to business value, you first have to go through the hurdle of adoption. Like someone has to be willing to even try or to care before you ever will get to business value. And so I see a lot, I guess one of my P's in in this space is that there's so much talk about business value and there's very little talk about adoption and, and providing value to the end user who is the gateway to getting any business value. If you're building yeah. anything that has a human in the loop, that's not fully automated, even in a fully automated system still has some human touch points in it. Right. You can't get to business value if you don't get through the, the first gate of adoption, want, care, usability, utility that has to provide, it has to improve someone's life in some way, or you'll never get to that. That's my soapbox on that. (laughs) Preach, Brian. I totally agree because yeah, business value also totally abstracts away any, I don't know, accountability. It's like, who's responsible? The business, but it's, well, our users, you can really think about who our users are and actually break that down into, well, we're aiming for these types of enterprise users in mm-hmm. this types of contexts, and we want adoption on this type of thing. And it actually leads to better metrics overall too, when you're able to be that specific. So that's another big thing that I, I end up helping teams work on too. But the other thing is too, this is where I get UXers involved and stuff too, because a lot of UXers are like, well, I don't work on AI or ML. I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, but you've been building out UX. You are an expert in UX and think about this machine learning or AI or data science model or something too, as another thing that can be designed and being able to present it in ways that really resonate with your users that could come up with even better ideas in the next quarter or year or something like that too, that really are solving these larger business problems. By involving the user, it's not just like a I don't know, like a checkbox for data literacy or, oh, do I really have to explain this? But it's like a way for your company to continue innovation and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's say, okay, I'm, I'm sold. This, this stuff sounds good. I'm going to go try <laughs> to do some of this, but how do I know it's working? Like, how do I measure this? How does my team know that we're, I mean, my model, I can see if we get from 30 to 46% accurate, that's some pretty concrete feedback right there. How do you measure this UX stuff? 
yeah. like that we're making a difference? Like, how do we know? For sure. Accuracy is only part of the equation. You also want to look into, I think you even mentioned it too, like adoption and how often that model is being used and in what context and everything too. Some other things too that I have seen that are really successful about just gauging some user feedback include if you are able, I'm sure we've all seen those little surveys that kind of pop up and they're like, how satisfied are you with this and whatever? And they might have some questions and everything too. That's a great way to just quarter over quarter be like, who are our users? What are they coming here to do? What are they trying to do? At least get some type of feedback. Another thing that I've seen too is some companies may actually read the Twitter or Reddit comments or something too about their product or wherever your users are kind of, if there's an open forum on Stack Overflow or something like that too. So you can see this, the types of problems and people sometimes will be like, oh, I'm working with this type of data and blank a blank a blank or whatever. So you really get a sense of what the users are doing, but then how do you measure it, right? I think that this is where you really put yourself in the mind of the user where you're like, well, what I really want as a enterprise user in a healthcare company is to be able to deploy this without any crashes or something like that. So maybe then you start tracking crashes or I want to deploy this and be able to have it serve across multiple devices or something like that, right? Or that kind of thing too. So really think about like, how does the model live in this user's ecosystem? What does it look like? What are all the touch points in which people would be interacting with it? And then treat those other freeform text and little surveys as kind of sprinkles of anecdotal data. Because one of my favorite quotes is, I think like one story is just an anecdote, but multiple anecdotes is actual data because, you know, you're getting it from multiple sources and it's over time and everything too. So think about it that way. So I've picked on my data science listeners enough. I'm sure some of them are now unsubscribing. Let's talk about what design and user experience professionals need to learn about machine learning and data products in general. My general feeling is there's a very small audience out there that are looking at this as maybe anything more than a fad, kind of like it's, I don't know, it's just another software thing uh, and this whole machine learning thing. I don't look at it that way. I know you don't see it that way. What do design leaders need to be thinking about with all of this? Oh yeah, for sure. My two cents is that we used to have ML and AI be like a thing within the experience. It used to be like an AI recommendation is like here or something like that too, right? Like your Spotify discover playlist or something, right? But it was like the rest of it may be curated or here's what our editors want or picked for you and that kind of thing. Or like spring stuff, whatever. But now AI is becoming more and more the product itself. And so it's really important to think about, it's not just like a one-off, oh, I need to design this one thing, but what happens when the entire interface is potentially changing for different people? And how does that presentation matter? And what are things too that maybe you really do want to have a sense of what makes a good overall experience for this user. And I know a lot of the times some designers are like, well, I don't know machine learning. I don't know ML, but I don't think you need to know ML or machine learning in order to design for ML and machine learning. You don't need to understand how to build the model, but you need to understand what the model does. You need to understand what the inputs and the outputs are. And I personally, I think it's going to go the way of I don't know if you remember the fad like uh, 10 plus years ago where everyone was like, I'm a mobile designer. But now if you say I'm a mobile designer, people are like, what is this, 2012? Like what? (laughs) (laughs) Because mobile is just a part of the design language itself. Now when you design something, you think about where your users are and potentially make a mobile app and that kind of thing too, or just go with responsive or something like that. So I think 
we already see a lot of, I actually see a lot of job postings now and then about, oh, AI designer or ML chatbot designer, voice user interface designer is probably a big one that I Mm -hmm. see a lot of, which I think that one is going to be here to say because that one's a unique thing about voice. But I actually think that designers who are able to kind of design for ambiguity are going to be the ones that tackle a lot of this AI and ML stuff. Mm -hmm. What's driving that increase? Why are these I think most of the context, what you're talking about are software product teams, but why didn't they need this five years ago? Why didn't they need a designer on these teams five years ago? What changed that all of a sudden there's a feeling they need user experience help? Yeah, I think that it's because of access. I think that doing ML and data science and AI has become so much easier with a lot of the tools that we already have, especially a lot of the the off the shelf models and everything too. Brian, I don't know if you've seen the hugging face spaces is currently what I'm most obsessed with. I'll ping it to you, but it's basically like, how do you just demo an ML model and understand what it does before committing to it, to put it on your website, right? And so I'm sure you, you saw the hype with Dolly two that just came out last week that's opening eyes new text like you write text and it turns it into an image and everything too but there's a wait list and stuff but they actually made a dolly mini where you could just play with it on your browser and you could just test it out and write something i always hear the song sweet dreams are made of bees so that's my go-to like (laughs) test out this ml model of what shows up when i type that that kind of thing too so access is a big one and i think there are some design patterns that that really matter i think hugging face spaces is a really great example that i think things like collab notebooks where you are able to quickly draft up a working doc of it's basically like google doc but a code, normally python code and stuff too and quickly share it across your team you don't need to be like oh okay go to my Jupyter Notebook repository and all this stuff too. I think that kind of types of innovation and technology have taken ML and AI from being a one person on the team can do it to more like anyone can check in and see how the model's doing and all this stuff too. And so I think that's really important. Cool. I meant to ask you about this earlier in some of the work that you're doing right now in your full-time gig. Talk to me about designing for technical audiences and What does it mean to have good user experience when you're talking about designing technical tools? Should they be easy? There's always this trade-off of flexibility (laughs) versus, you know, it's like you don't always need a purpose-built tool. Sometimes you need a a platform for experimentation or a platform to do this. I don't need a piece of art. I need a Photoshop. It's a different kind of design. Talk to me about how do you think about this? How do you approach it when data scientists are the users of of a tool? Definitely. So one of the things that I think about and I talk to my teams about is I know we talked about you're not the users, but just because we spend eight hours a day thinking about these tools doesn't mean our users should spend eight hours a day thinking about this tool. Right. And so how are they going to get to this tool? How are they going to leave this tool? Because that's the other thing. We don't want them there forever. And so how do we support them in their overall journey from Maybe they are testing out something very early stage. Maybe they're already dealing with a model that's already in production. How do we help support them wherever they're at? And so this tool becomes a vital part of their work stream. That's something that is an overall user experience problem where it's, yeah, I can provide the best user experience on my platform. I can't change the other platforms, how they come in and how they leave, but I can at least make sure that the connections that I've established can actually work for them, right? So it may be something of integrating into GitHub or being able to quickly visualize it on a Tableau dashboard. I don't know. I'm just thinking about some common things that I've I've seen before too. And that still could be a huge critical 
value to the users because it's not just about the model. It's also about how do you interpret what the model's doing? How do you deploy the model? How do you change the model? How do you tune its hyperparameters? That kind of thing too. Which models do you choose? I know that's a big one. I don't know. I know for me, when I develop ML models, I have like ImageNet 7, ImageNet 403, ImageNet 9002. It's, oh, okay, these are like my three really good ones because I've tried so many other ones and how do I decide which one do I go with? So that Mm -hmm. kind of thing too. Got it. When you're testing these solutions with technical users, is it harder to get clear signals about when you're doing a good job or not when the audience is technical? Or do you have pretty good like formal stuff? I mean, yes and no. So I think sometimes for enterprise users, which tends to be like data scientists using like data science tools, right? There's just a lower threshold for what's okay. And so some people are like, oh yeah, this works. This is fine. But this is kind of where I put on my UX research hat and I'm like, but this is actually the way that you want to do it. Walk me through your workflow. That's another big one too, about like, how do you go from, I have a model here and now I'm trying, or you're using a model on my system or platform. And what do you do next? Like, why do that? What are the types of things that would make you want to change that model? That kind of thing too. Got it. Got it. I wanted to actually double back on one other thing you you had talked about interpretability. Can you talk to me a little bit about the role of design around model interpretability and explainability as well? I've had multiple guests on the show to talk about this, and I think these are important parts of the design, important parts of the user experience. How do you think about that? When do we need to expose the guts? How do we expose the guts? How do we convince somebody, or maybe convincing is not the right word, but how do you approach the design of, of interpretability and or explainability? Totally. I think you probably your other guests too have felt the same way. Black box models or to calling things a black box doesn't help in terms of what can we actually look into it. I think you, me, probably your audience, we understand that when you make a model, there are things that make it this model different than this model. And we're able to heuristically look at that and understand, oh, this one's performing better because of X, Y, or Z, right? Or at least some general heuristics. I think that's the type of thing that I would love to see kind of surface to our users in terms of explainability and interpretability is you don't need to explain everything. One of the things that I think about too is, I don't know if you've seen the TensorFlow embeddings projections mm-hmm. online. Okay. I'll link it to you, but imagine you could plot all principal components analysis of word to back or something. So you see a cluster of royalty, queen, king, royalty kind of things. You can literally explore it in the three-dimensional space and you could change out the different principal components. No, that would not work for like a, a business manager or something like that too. So like, how do I predict my sales? No, they don't need to know all that, but they might want to know, hey, another similar type of business to medical applications is healthcare or optometry or here's different types, you know? So it's like, how do you take this N dimensional space and be like, well, what are some heuristics that I look for, right? I look for things that might be similar. Here's how I present the similar things to the users. I think like those types of design patterns actually get at explainability and interpretability a lot more than being like here, now look inside the hood of the model and that kind of thing too. And so it's things that we actually know how to do that we're doing already when we go about building the model, but we're not surfacing them to the end user. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. This is good. MLUX, where are you going with it? What's next? <laughs> what, what do you want to yeah. see? What do you want to see out of this meetup? Is it going to stay a meetup? What's, yeah. the, what's, what's its vision? Oh gosh. Yeah. When I made it in 2017, I was like, yep, it'll be around for like a year or two. And then we'll just normalize the ML and UX go together and then I'll stop running it and it'll be fine. But still, I find that people are like, well, you do ML and UX. And I'm like, yeah, like 
what? So I guess it's going to still be a thing until we have more jobs and normalize that ML and UX go together. We're still doing virtual events too. What we found, I mean, we were doing events in New York and Seattle. So we had already branched out to three different locations, SF Bay Area, New York, Seattle, Mm-hmm. Had done events at the World Trade Center with Spotify, had done events up in, with Getty Images with the head of data science there. But, you know, we still want to be accessible to everyone. And by doing things virtually, we found that we're able to engage the community in South America. We get a ton of people from Brazil and Guatemala joining Australia. We weren't able to support people in different parts of the world. And so we're trying to mix it up. We're doing some 9 a.m. Pacific time. We're doing some 5 p.m. Pacific time and just trying to be accommodating for people's schedules. We have events coming up, so I want to get this on your radar. I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but the next one is going to be May 12th at 9 a.m. with some folks from the Expedia group. This might be of particular interest to your audience because it's going to be their head of data science and one of their senior designers on how do they work together to actually as a UX designer for data scientists and a data scientist who's using UX designers and all this stuff too. Awesome. How do they get that info? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at MLUX meetup. We're also on LinkedIn and stuff too. I think our Twitter is probably the best and I'll just tweet out when stuff is happening. And from there, you can also see we have a newsletter. And so I try to send that out when we have a couple events. And if you're ever, if your audience is ever interested in our past events too, we actually have them all up on our YouTube channel. So bit.ly, slash MLUX YouTube is where to find all of them too. And there's a couple dozen videos at this point. I'm trying to think the one that might be of particular interest is actually Salesforce's data-driven personas. I know I mentioned it at like a high level, but Mm -hmm. it was actually pretty interesting where they took the metrics data from their users to create personas. And so how does that kind of work? And maybe that's something too, where your audience actually has metrics on who's using it in a general sense. And how do they use unsupervised learning to kind of create, oh, wait, this is one type of user group. Maybe what are some motivations that they might have to think of? So. Cool. Michelle, this has been fun. Any, just wanted to give you a chance, any closing thoughts you'd like to share before we we call it a day? It's been great to talk to you and thanks for your work in this space. Oh my gosh. Thank you for the opportunity. I guess my closing thoughts are we need more folks who have a background in design, data science, but also anything in between like archaeology. I've met some of my favorite folks doing ML and UX stuff are from sociology or Uh, social work and everything too. And so if this is of interest to you too, we need a lot of different folks with a lot of different perspectives and everything too, because AI and machine learning is something that impacts everyone. And so if we want it to be designed for everyone, we need everyone to design it and it needs to be designed by everyone. And so I want to encourage folks who may be listening and from different backgrounds of like, I don't know if I fit in and all this stuff. No, keep on doing it. Think about how your domain expertise, we're all an expert in something uh, applies to this and um, excited to see what y'all do. Awesome. I love it. Michelle Carney, founder of MLUX. Thank you for coming on Experiencing Data. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for hosting this. This has been really fun. Great way <laughs> yeah, to start indeed. my Monday morning. So <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll take care. We'll get the links up to the shows. And oh, yeah. And you, how do we follow you? At least LinkedIn, Twitter. Oh, where, right. do, where do people follow Michelle? Yes. Michelle R. Carney on Twitter. My April Fool's joke this year is that I changed my middle name to R because I used to teach data science and I love the programming Ooh. language so much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Leave you. with a data science joke. Uh-huh. I think <laughs> okay. Twitter liked it more than my students did. It is. Anyways, Michelle R. Carney. The other Michelle Carney is a famous soccer player. So I'm the R one because I love data science. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> well, we'll talk soon. And thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you, Brian. And thank you, folks, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.